someone made a suggestion in terms of how we should be approaching the footnotes. And I think we're going to take that suggestion and implement it in practice. So our goal is going to be that as we read through each letter, the footnotes that I think will be relevant, when we get up to that footnote, we will then look at that footnote at that time, right? But to look at it the next day or two days later is not really going to be as relevant to us. So that's what we're going to do. We're not going to go through all the footnotes and only the ones that I think are necessary. Okay. So he begins his response. Rabbi Naftali begins his response. I am answering your letter at once, dear Benjamin, but do not think that I have not thoroughly reflected on its contents. As you know, the subjects you mentioned have occupied my mind since youth. You know, too, that I was educated by enlightened, religiously observant parents. They having been inspired by the writings of the Tanakh, the Torah, at an early age, my maturing intellect led me of my own free desire to the study of Talmud, and that I did not select the rabbinical vocation because of practical consideration, but solely to follow my inner life plan. This specific footnote describes how this is essentially autobiographical. In other words, he's actually telling his own life history. His parents were religiously observant, but critical point, they were also enlightened, right? They were not individuals who were growing up in Poland and had no access to secular education, no access to some of the, the great teachings of the philosophers of the age. That's not the, the lifestyle that he grew up with, right? Also, he himself was inspired by the writings of the Torah at an early age. His parents did not tell him, we want you to follow a certain path in life. And to follow that path, you're going to have to study, spend a lot of time studying the Talmud and become a rabbi. That was not at all the life path that his parents had plotted out for him as a, young, as a youngster. So he slowly, having determined from the Tanakh, the veracity of the Torah, and that everything in the Torah is true, he decided that he wants to learn deep and deep level. He wants to study the Talmud. Once he did that, he then followed this vocation to rabbinics. I am therefore surprised that you suspect me of hypocrisy on account of my official position. In other words, he's saying you have it all wrong. The reason why I am espousing the rabbinic position is not because I am a rabbi. I am a rabbi because I believe in the rabbinic position. So therefore, the fact that I'm going to defend traditional Judaism is not due to my uh, hypocrisy, my personal confirmations, my, my confirmation bias about my, the profession that I chose to be part of. Rather, it's because this is what I truly believe to be the reason and the purpose of living. Were you not my friend and I yours, I would be angry at you. But this is, of course, the curse of our time and the obstacle to all our work. What is he referring to? Ideals which should be the heritage of all have become mere appurtenances of our office. In other words, you're misinterpreting and assuming that I would come to defend that because I am a rabbi is precisely because of the attitude of the age. And the attitude of the age was, what does religion do for me? So if that is your attitude, then you ascribe pernicious, I say pernicious, not that Benjamin would have understood it to be pernicious, but Naftali understands these to be pernicious principles, right? To say that I'm only doing it because I'm asking myself, what does it do for me, is a completely imputing a completely wrong and corrupt motivation to his, to his desires. Truths that are meant to rule everyone's life are seen as applying to only one particular group, those for whom religion is a profession. 
right? So people are, if, if it's your profession, then I understand that you're going to have to follow all of the, all the principles and you're gonna have to follow all of those minutiae. I understand that that's just your profession. But in terms of with someone who's practical and has not made this his life's job to practice this and to teach others, why would he possibly follow all of this? Thus people say, he, of course he has to speak this way. He has to act that way. After all, his position, his livelihood demand it. What a sorry deterioration of the age when the disavowal of one's innermost convictions for the sake of his livelihood seems perfectly normal. So much so that everything becomes permissible provided it yields one's daily bread. And this is something which is as powerful now as it was then, right? I think we probably all can see things or people or, or parts of ourselves that we sometimes do this ourselves, right? That do we really hold true to our innermost convictions at all costs, right? Or do we say, ah, livelihood, okay, we have to make a compromise here. Ah, we have to make a compromise there. And it's completely understandable. And it is so understandable that the assumption is that Rev Hirsch himself doesn't even believe it. You don't actually believe all this stuff. You just have to sell it. Okay, great. So you sell it. So um, there's a joke about, uh, about two Hasidic Jews, but it's a little too long for a 10 minute one, but maybe a different night, I'll tell it. Okay, um, well, you know, what, what people would do to make a, a daily living. Okay, well, now that our religious ideals and life truths have been relegated to the circle of the professionals, you and a thousand others with you will perhaps be pleased. Because if what we're saying is that Judaism is beautiful, totally beautiful, and when I go into the synagogue, I do everything. I'm a perfect Jew in the synagogue, but the rest of my life, that's out of the synagogue. Jews who live a life as Jews outside the synagogue, that's for professionals. They get paid to do that. The rest of us, we don't do that. Now, you'll be pleased if that's how your, your perception of what Judaism is. After all, now you can hope for and foresee the probability that they will soon disappear from there too. And then at last, the beginning can finally be made to basing life on the principles of happiness and perfection, right? These are the very strong quotation marks around those. Those principles hovering between heaven and earth, still self-evident as to require no further support. In other words, we have these first principles, happiness and perfection. How do we define them? Who said there's, that this is the, the purpose of life? It's just axiomatic. And there's nothing else to talk about. Who told you that that should be the idea? The only thing that, what part of why you want to get rid of Judaism as a, as a way of life, other than professionals, and then perhaps one day, not even in, not even in the professional sphere, is so that you can actually pursue a life of happiness and perfection, which is going to be defined, obviously, by each internal person's definition of what happiness looks like. I think today and in America and probably around the world, and even in the last 20 years, the, the percentage of people who believe in God and the percentage of people who believe in, in a divine set of truths or divine morals, divine ethics is, is falling precipitously. And as it falls, then it just becomes a free-for-all and everybody determines what they hold to be dear, right? Or what they hold to be most important in life. They sort of now um, shoehorn their principles and they say, my principles say X, Y, and Z. Well, they say X, Y, and Z because of where you're looking to get to in life. It's pretty necessary for them to say that. But when you take away an absolute set of morals, it doesn't, it's not that surprising that this is going to be the next step. I will say there is some hope because when COVID hit, that I think I might have mentioned this in the past, but the, 
the percentage of searches for how to pray on Google went up by like, I don't know, 300% in, in many, many locations, because uh, sometimes at least, no, no atheists in fact holds up. But please forgive my agitation, and I too will forget that you spoke in such a way. I shall proceed to answer your letter, and I surely need not reassure you once more that my official station in no way influences my reply. So you want to judge Judaism by whether or not it helps us attain the purpose of human existence, which according to your definition is happiness and perfection. I might ask, is it so sure that happiness and perfection are the purpose for which man was created? So essentially the footnote over here, what it mentions is that over the next uh, 11 letters from three through 14, Rab Hirsch is going to spend a lot of time discussing what the purpose of life is based on the Torah's understanding of the purpose of life. In 15, he's now going to redefine what real happiness and perfection look like. Is it so sure that happiness and perfection are the purpose for which man was created? I might ask, what is your basis for this opinion? I might ask, what would you answer the libertine, the criminal, to whom intoxication and momentary gratification of the senses outweigh every other happiness, temporal or eternal? Is not every individual entitled to decide his own standard of happiness? After all, if happiness has to conform to an externally imposed formula, it can no longer be called happiness. In other words, he's saying that if you follow your conclusion to the logical end, then what we're going to say is that you have someone who's drunk and you say to him, you're drunk, your life is a failure, you're not doing anything with your life. He says, well, I'm happy when I'm drunk. Okay, but you're not doing anything, but he's, he's defining happiness when he is drunk. Who are you to define what his level of happiness is, right? So you cannot say that it's just purely in each individual should decide subjectively what happiness is. 